During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight I want to talk about the Jews in Hadrian, the background to the Great Revolt, which the very fact that I'm putting in Hadrian in there means that we're dealing with uh, a Roman emperor is a major factor, obviously, in uh, what we're talking about because the whole Barcocha rebellion is rebel against Hadrian. So uh, who is this guy? Uh, one of the most famous of the Roman emperors, uh, by far. Um, his reign is 20 years. So the Barcochba and everything goes along with that. The little that we know, we know, takes place smack in the middle of this extremely fateful 20 years, two decades, from 117 to, to 138. He dies at 138. Um, Hadrian, very, very interesting guy. And every museum in the world has a Hadrian exhibit at one time or another. Uh, the historians and the philosophers fascinated with this uh, person, uh, one often considered the most remarkable or the most famous or among the most famous of the Roman emperors. To us Jews, he's a hilarious, but to everybody else, he was a great guy. And uh, there's no question, and no, but, 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 but really, that uh, in there lies the whole tale. Uh, because uh, there's no question that uh, Hadrian is one of the most intelligent of the Roman emperors, without, uh, without a doubt. And in many ways, he was sort of like uh, the Plato model of the philosopher king. Uh, Plato in the Republic, you remember, uh, says that the proper form of government is a dictatorship of the smart people, like we have in America, you know. And <laughs> our, I take that back, Baltimore City. The, uh, <laughs> right? But a democracy is ridiculous because the public doesn't know anything. The masses are asses. The oilum is a goilum, as they say. But the smart people, they should know everything. And to be perfectly honest, we do apply this in our lives today, even in the United States of America, in certain specific areas, such as medicine. There's such a thing as the public health authorities, right? And uh, they can deprive you of your liberty when the law permits this, when, when the, they, the experts, consider it to be necessary. Right? And uh, the idea is the public doesn't understand if there's a, uh, an epidemic or other kind of menace over there, and you can't say, I don't want to get this shot if you will affect the others, and so on and so forth. So there are, of course, certain areas, and water control, you know, there are significant areas of our modern industrial lives which uh, we apply the, co- the concept of the philosopher king. Hopefully the experts get it right. Sometimes they don't. Um, but Plato, of course, lived thousands of years ago, and he said you should apply this across the board. And uh, the idea, therefore, is that you get a smart guy, um, give him the proper training, and then give him dicta- dictatorship powers. And what's the proper training? It's very interesting. Uh, you don't get to be a, a member of the elite class till what, you're like 40s or something like that, maybe a little later, because you have to have a certain amount of basic education, obviously, then you have to have some life training, spend some time in the military, spend some time in administration, spend some time in business, makes, makes sense, right? Learn the ropes in a lot of different areas. Hadrian did this. 
Uh, he, he was a relative of Trajan, uh, from a Spanish Roman family. Um, he had an excellent education uh, from a young age, because he had the elite background and they cared about that sort of thing. So in other words, the sciences, the mathematics, the Greek, the Latin, and the philosophy, all that business. Uh, very good education. Then he spent a lot of time in the army, working his way up, you know, from a second lieutenant up, up the ranks. So uh, he learned that end of it uh, very well. He was a, a very competent soldier. He spent a lot of time in this climb to power, being in the administration capacity, a governor of this, a, you know, quester, something, you know, something elsewhere. He learned what law is all about. He learned what bureaucracy is all about. He understood how to balance the books. When he took accounting, this is not your typical Roman emperor. Most of those guys, I mean, <laughs> I don't want to use extremes, but I will for rhetorical purposes. Compare Hadrian, for example, with Caligula, you know, or something like that, or Nero, or what, and, a, and a lot of the other Roman emperors later on. Even the more competent ones were just soldiers who fought their way to power. Let's say, for example, Vespasian. Uh, he was no dummy, but he didn't have this kind of broad background, nor did he claim to be. He was a peasant who rose up the army ranks. You see? And so here you have a guy that really is given the full power, um, and he was uh, therefore always claiming to be sort of like the philosopher, he's the perfect ruler. And, uh, it's, you know, it ought to have turned out better for the Jews, let's put it that way. One would have thought. There's a very famous story, many stories, about Hadrian, where uh, from a young age, from, from early on in his reign, uh, the... the uh, the lady that made him the emperor. If, if you remember what we talked about last time, there had been Trajan, and he was a very successful conqueror. But then the war kind of fell apart into a Vietnam-type struggle. And then uh, Trajan went back to Rome, and he died on the way. He had no son, and he had no heir that he left his adopted son. He had one earlier who had died earlier. And so who's in charge? Um, Trajan's wife, who was a very uh, brilliant woman, from the old days, uh, we let's see, yeah, Plotina, you know, you could still see her. So uh, she had a reputation being very uh, high class and sagacious as well, and very educated. So she liked Hadrian uh, for one reason or another. Some speculate this way, some speculate that way. But the bottom line is, these were two highly intelligent people, and she said, "My husband told me in his deathbed just before he died, he adopted Hadrian." You know, and uh, a couple of generals and people like that said, "How do you know this is true?" Suddenly, they disappeared. You know, the army, I told you, they passed out cash, like you saw last time, and Hadrian's in. But whatever the case is, I mean, that's how they do business in Rome, you understand? Uh, whatever the case was, she exercised, we're told, a very good influence in him in the sense, and listen closely, I'm about to say, you're going to have absolute power, that means you have to know how to exercise caution. Because you can tell anybody, kill them, and they'll kill them. You can tell anybody, break them, and they'll break them. So power is an aphrodisiac, you understand? You can, you can get drunk with it. Um, Power does corrupt. So you have to be on guard as a philosopher, right, with a sense of philosophical chachma to restrain yourself and exercise intelligent caution all the time. And uh, the, the long and the short of it is, as long as she was alive, it kind of worked. And she died in 122, 123, five, five or six years after he became emperor. And then afterwards, little by little, very, very slowly, uh, the power got the better of him. It became more and more dictatorial, more and more, you know, never totally. He always had that philosophical side, uh, you know, to want to show that he's too cool just to be a regular tyrant. But, yeah, you know, he, he, he killed a few people here. He burned a few things there. That's, that's it. By the time he was dying, it was, it was bad news. Um, but in the early years, it's very famous. 
Hadrian was the emperor of Rome. He walked down the street. A poor lady said, I want to ask you a question. He said, I don't have the time. Then she said, then don't be the emperor. He said, you're right, I'll stop. You understand? No, no, no. She's right. So I'm trying to show you this is not your regular um, tyrant. He was distinguished by the ability to think things through. He'd be a great CEO. He had that kind of a background. And he really was the CEO of the Roman Empire. This is his claim to fame, one way or the other. But he was a product of his culture, and that's always the downfall of everybody. You can be the smartest guy in your business, but at the end of the day, you're going to be an American of the 21st century, or a Russian of the 21st century, or a Chinese, or anything like that. The culture is always going to uh, you know, dominate you whether you realize it or not. And being a Roman, of course, everything exists for the benefit of Rome. And everyone has to fit themselves into this hierarchy, including the Jews. That's natural. So do the Gauls. So do the, you know, Parthians, the Egyptians, there's everybody. That's taken granted. But as I said, he was a, a model of a CEO. And as soon as he came into power, the first thing he does was inventory his strategic thinking, which is what you want a good CEO to do, correct? What, what do we have? And what's out there? What are our resources? Very to the cost-benefit analysis type situation. Very interesting in this regard, which a lot of others uh, didn't do. And so as a result of all this talk that I'm saying, the bottom line is that Hadrian, as I mentioned at the very end of the last time, let's go to the next slide over here, made significant modifications to the Roman frontiers. And basically, as I mentioned, he closed down the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, one, two, three. You know, he said the costs and, and the benefits don't work. He had actually been against the whole war in the first place. He had told Trajan it's a bad idea, but Trajan said, you're just a limp. And so Trajan went ahead and did it and did conquer this area, but then it turned out Hadrian was right because it cost too much money and too much blood to justify this kind of expenditure. Or am I wrong? The uh, generals of Trajan said, no, uh, the minute you start to go to defense, you lose. Is that correct? You know, play chess. Very few people can do it well in defense, correct? The minute you start to go defense, it is a question of time. And uh, Hadrian had them all killed, you know. Uh, this one was found at the bottom of a bathtub. This one was found, you know, uh, with poison strawberries. But they all died. And, uh, and his idea was like this. I'm the boss, and it's going to go my way. And I say we, we're going to do it. We're going to pull out of all the un, un, unprofitable conquests, you see. And we're going to consolidate over here. And I care whether the economy, whether the budget is in the red or the black. It does matter. You know, you general guys, you just think of wars. But there's a real world out there in addition to the wars. And so he had these kind of uh, situations over there. So here, I'll just give you very briefly. This was the Roman Empire, as I told you last week. It looked like before Trajan came along. It's the Rhine and the Danube and a very uh, precarious situation over in the Middle East. Uh, then Trajan came along, and let's take a look at the next map. Oh, he conquered this whole big area, at least for a while, didn't he? And he took over all the Romania over here and even st stuck this as past the Rhine River. When Hadrian came along, he said like this. This we can't hold, so let's pull out of all this. This we can hold. We've moved people into here. Romania, Dacia, as they call it that time. We can hold that. This German stuff we can't hold. Let's pull back beyond the Rhine River. Meaning, he did a lot of very intelligent, strategic type of thinking, all of which shows you that we're not dealing with some drunken lout who just killed the Jews or something like that. He was, he was a, a, a highly uh, clever and intelligent uh, kind of ruler. He consolidates intelligently because he realized which no one in Rome wanted to, that uh, the barbarian um, problem can never be solved, it can only be managed. 
Um, you know, you conquered Germany, then you got the country after Germany. You conquered that, you got the country after that. Where does it end? And Rome doesn't have the money and the soldiers, even if they want to, to handle all that. It's, it's a lesson in hubris that the United States has had to learn in the last half of the 20th century, as we all know, right? There was a time, so can, we can do Vietnam, and we can do Korea, at the same time, you can fight a third war in, in Germany if Russia breaks through, and, can, and then after a while, a little by little, I said, like this, we don't have the money anymore. <laughs> you know, in other words, and, and you overstretch. And uh, that's a moment of uh, uh, middle age. <laughs> and that's when the Roman Empire hit the middle age under Trajan. Um, excuse me, under Hadrian. Trajan was all against that. He said, that's, you know, uh, the wrong way to go. As long as, 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 long as you do that, you, you, you're slow suicide. I'm not saying that Trajan was wrong, but I'm just telling you what happened to Mysa. On the other hand, just because he pulled out didn't mean that he felt the Roman Empire should go Pacific, and therefore peace through strength was really a characteristic of the reign of Hadrian. He ran around all over the empire, constantly checking the army out, uh, giving them new weapons, uh, you know, fixing the regiments. He, he took a great deal of care in all this. But it's the old idea of literally peace through strength. By having a strong army, they won't attack. That's the point. Correct? The point of having an army is not to have to fight. True or not? Some people don't get that. He got that. And during his reign, for the most part, there weren't any wars, which is kind of interesting in Roman history. Okay? As a result, there was a huge unleashing of economic prosperity because the barbarians were kept out. And the Roman Empire is, you know, sealed in, and there's a lot of countries in there, and the whole Mediterranean, and everybody's making money, and that's the way it went over there. Uh, there. So as I say, this is a reign characterized for the most part, not totally, by intelligent caution. Um, Hadrian realizes that there are many areas of the Roman Empire that are kind of falling apart. We've been spending so much time fighting on the borders. Who's, who's minded the store at home? Um, and they require the personal attention of the CEO. Okay? And accordingly, he spent, I would say, 95 or 98% of his reign, not in Rome, but running around all over the empire constantly. This is what he's famous for. He went on these huge expeditions. He was peripatetic. He never stopped. You know, he went here at this whole area. I'll just give you one example. He even went to the Vashtunka to England, which was at the end of the Roman Empire, all the way up there. And I'm sure some of you have been in England. He built Hadrian's Wall which is an example of what I'm talking about. Scotland, forget about it. We don't even want them, and, 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 and it'll, it'll cost too much money to ever go up there and fight in the mountains and all the rest of it. Forget about it, you know? But build a wall and keep them out. You see? And he spent whatever year is fixing up. Why? Somebody has to take care of the British situation. I mean, that's his, that's his idea. Otherwise, the, 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 the Roman colony of England will fall apart. And he did the same thing in, in Spain and this place and that place and the other place. I'm not going to give you all the details. That's not the to us. But... He is a person who is always on the move, and is this a question, when is he going to get to the Middle East? That's what we're interested in, of course. Um, the different provinces and the different races received the emperor's full attention, especially on matters of infrastructure and public buildings, both secular and religious. So the history of Hadrian is he goes to a place, he says, what's going over here? Who are the uh, honest bureaucrats? Who are the crooked bureaucrats? Let's kill the crooked ones. Get some new honest ones in there. The public buildings are falling apart. Or we need new city halls or a new amphitheater or something like that. That was his specialty. He'd come in, uh, you know, Mr. Millionaire, which he was. And he said, I'll build it over here. And he built palaces and, and, and mainly temples. You know, he was a very religious kind of Roman pagan. He builds all kind of temples and, 
and that sort of thing all over the Roman Empire, so many of which are still there today. If you go to Rome, we were there last year, you can still go see if you're interested. Now it's a church, everything in Rome is a church, but it used to be the, uh, the headquarters of paganism, the pantheon of, 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 of Hadrian, which is, even if you stand on the outside, it's a, it's a big, impressive building. Okay? I won't tell you to go on the inside, but when you stand on the outside, it's a big, impressive building. And that was just one of many that he uh, put up. So this is the type of guy that he is. Okay, so what about the Middle East? What about the Jews? That's what we're interested in. In um, the first half of his reign, shall we say, first eight, ten years of his reign, Hadrian was still in, in the uh, positive mode. He was still acting with a great deal of intelligence. And so, meaning he let this govern this. He let the mind govern the heart. And in that context, uh, he seeks to pacify the Jewish problem. Okay? As we saw last time, even if we don't have perfect records, and that's an understatement, something bad happened in the time of Trajan, and some big uprising happened with the Jews. And if you believe the numbers that they give you, so half a million Jews were killed here, they killed a million of the non-Jews. It's, it, you know, it was a crazy, uh, time. remember they ate their bodies and things like that. So even if you cut down three quarters of the exaggeration, we'll never know. Uh, the whole Middle East had been in turmoil, and that is what messed up Trajan's war. Hadrian, no matter what he thought personally, whether he likes Jews or not, was intelligent enough to say like this, right now we got problems all over the empire, let's uh, you know, not stir up the Jewish hornet's nest. They had suppressed the rebellions, uh, we'll never know. There's a famous medrash that says that Hadrian had all the Jews come out and they said, this, you have a white flag, and then he killed them. And there are those who speculate that happened in the suppression of the treasure revolts. Like I say, it's, it's never possible to really uh, you know, triangulate this the way we were. But we know a lot of people had been killed in these years, in 117, 118. Uh, I mean, a lot of people, half a million Jews, have perished in, in, equal, in much larger number of Gentiles. Enough killing for a while in the Middle East. This is Hadrian's idea. And so, as I said before, whatever he personally thinks of the Jewish question, calm everybody down. And uh, it's very interesting because, as far as the tales of what happened with Hadrian and Jews in the first 13 years of his reign, the sources are not great. As I've told you before, it's difficult and it's even guesswork to try to decipher historically the different accounts in the rabbinic literature. For example, there are and anybody who knows the Gemara is familiar with this. There are many conversations recorded in the Gemara between the great Tana, the great sage, Rabbi Hoshub Melchanani on the one hand, and Adriana's case and Hadrian on the other. Um, I'll just give one example. Maybe you've read it one time or another. Uh, Hadrian says, let me see God. And the rabbi said, you can't see God. Well, I don't want to see God. You know, Why not? He's not there. See? And then the rabbi says, well, look at the sun in the middle of the day. He looks up, he says, I can't look at the sun. If you can't look at the sun, how can you look at the person who made this or the, the God who made this? You know, those kind of tales. Um, did this really happen? Meaning, was it Rabbi Yeshua and Adrianus and Hadrian? Was it some Roman general that they just call Hadrian? Was it a Roman official, a philosopher? If he was Hadrian, where did he meet him? Rabbi Yeshua Mechanania had lived, had been a Kohen in the time of the base of Migdash. Those who know the mission of the Gemara will remember this. He, was been, he served in the Levi choir. Okay? So, I mean, okay, let's do some numbers on that. The base of Migdash was destroyed in the year 70. If he was in the base of Migdash, what was he born? In the year 40 or something like that? What are we talking about now? 120? It's possible, you know, he'd be 80 years old. I mean, it could be. But uh, where did he meet Hadrian? Uh, Hadrian wasn't in the Middle East until the year 130. We have the pretty good records about that. We know he was in England. We know he was fighting a, 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 a revolt in Mauritania, in Morocco. Uh, he spent a lot of time hanging around with the Greeks because he loved the Greeks. He spent, uh, you know, uh, uh, building up Athens like crazy. And this and this year, 
So where did he run Rabbi Shimon Hananiah? On the other hand, maybe he did. Maybe Rabbi Shimon Hananiah met him in Rome. Uh, maybe he met him in Athens or Alexandria. Can't tell. You see? What year was it? When? Welcome to the real world. Now, the easiest thing in the world, and sometimes it's tempting, but it's not tempting to me anymore, you know, just shoot the bull. Right? Just say, oh, the once upon a time, in the year 125, there was a meeting in uh, Sicily between Hadrian and Shubhachania, where there's a very well-known uh, trip, side trip that he made or something. Uh, but we don't know. And so, um, how do, you know, maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. This is the problem that I'm facing with and I, I, I will not pretty up for you. There is a very intriguing medrash in Parsh Toldos, um, which is not clear when it happened, but very striking. Uh, what is Toldos, Parsh Toldos about? The birth of the twins, Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov, Esau. Jacob, Esau. Jacob, the ancestor of the Jews. Esau, in rabbinical thought, the ancestor of the Romans. You see what I'm saying? Uh, how does the Midrash, how did the rabbis of old look at the rise of the Roman Empire? Predestined. Progeny of the sons of the patriarchs, Yitzhak and Rivka. Already in the belly of the mother, two great nations are going to emerge, and so forth. So a lot of the Midrashim, especially in Parsha told us, for those who are interested in this sort of thing, they're speaking about the two brothers, but really they're talking about who? The Jews and the Romans. So in the context over there of that, the Medrash tells a very interesting story. And it goes as follows. In the times of this famous sage, the wicked kingdom, that was the Romans, gave permission to rebuild the temple. Um, okay, great. Hoshivu Papas Ulianus so two public-spirited Jews, wealthy Jews, uh, Papa Zulianus, who were the same names as the people who were killed last week in, in the Trajan Wars. So I'm saying, you know, the, when, when you have these names, it's, it's like there were two important Jews um, set up free food for all the Jews who are now going to come in ecstasy to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Okay, I mean, after all, there are logistic problems. You've got to eat and drink. So two public city people said they're going to set up free food from Akko to Antioch, right? Or in Tokyo, maybe somewhere else. It's a lot. They would supply all the people in there. Um, now here, what the Medrash does, as it often does, is it takes a biblical story and uses it as sort of a trope and applies it to this situation. We have, in Jewish history, in the Bible, the famous story of the rebuilding of the Second Temple. There had been a base of Migdash that was built by Shlomo Amel, King Solomon, and that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. And then a certain period of time went by, and then, as I'm sure just about everybody knows, the Persians who took over the Babylonian Empire, wiped them out, and took over, the Iranians, Cyrus the Great, gave permission for the Jews and go rebuild the temple. However, they started working on it, and whereupon some enemies of the Jews, who the Jews had also ticked off, said in a famous, this is all in the book of Ezra, they all, they all said, oh no, if you allow the Jews to rebuild the temple, it will uh, redound not to the benefit of the Persian Empire, but to the opposite. Because once they fortify themselves in Jerusalem, then they'll declare independence, and it'll be rebellion against the Persian Empire, and you lose the whole Trans-Euphrates uh, area. You can read the, it's an Aramaic, but you can, you can, it's a very famous story. And um, the bottom line is, they say, same thing happened over here. The Romans allowed the Jews to build the temple, but Kusim, 
which whatever that means either means they're literally the Kusim or some other group that wasn't Jewish, enemies of the Jews, came and told the Romans, oh, this is a bad idea. And if you do this, just as was the old tale, if you allow this, then the Jews will set up another state, it'll be a rebellion against Rome, etc., etc. That's what the Medrash tells us. Um, so the story is that the Romans said, the Malchus or Shah, the wicked kingdom said, what can we do? We already gave permission. You can't just turn on a dime. I don't know if that's true or not, but you know, in the Persian Empire, we know from the book of Esther and from the book of Daniel that they had a law over there that once they issued it, it can't be revoked. I don't know about the Roman Empire. You ever hear of Tiberius? <laughs> you ever hear of Nero? <laughs> you know, but let us say that they did that. So Amrlay, so the enemies of the Jews advised them very deviously to do the following. Shlach uh, send a message to the Jews and say, Change the dimensions of the temple a little bit. Move the altar five amas in this way, the walls ten amas in that way. You know, don't do it the exact same way, but there should be reforms and modifications in the structure of the architecture. And you'll see these enemies of the Jews advise the Roman government according to this matters. If you do that, the Jews on their own will withdraw from the whole project. Because Jews are crazy, instead of taking a deal, even if they get 95%, they'll say 100% or nothing, and this is not the temple we went, we went one exactly like the old one, and so forth. And so the result was the Jews went on a, a, a frenzy. The uh, Jewish public was heated up, like you see now in Egypt and these other countries, they're going to riot. And they got together in a place called Bikas Beis Rima, right? There's a certain uh, public area. And uh, oh my goodness, and you have five and ten Marikanis giving the speech, rallying up the crowd. The story didn't go, yes, that's what happened. Let's go to war with Rome. Kim and Nelson kissed by when they got the letters, they started crying. And then when they got this, in other words, they had thought that they're going to get permission. It'll be a happy occasion when they got the letters from Rome saying you have to change the, altar, uh, the, the dimensions of the temple. They started crying, and then they said, let's, let's fight against Rome. Uh, this was a dangerous moment. Amrin, so the wiser heads said, Let's get some wise old man to calm everybody down. Right? Someone has public respect. Amrin Yalashumachanya. They get the famous Tanashumachanya, because he's one of the leading rabbis. This is Rabbi Lazar of Yeshua, you hear about him all the time. He was renowned as a famous debater and um, polemicist. All the time in the Gemara with the, with, with, with the uh, non-Jews and with the philosophers and the Saba de Beatuna and all this stuff. And so he's the mouthpiece for that sort of thing. You know, you can be very wise and not be a good debater, correct? You, know, you, you might not have learned rhetoric or, 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 uh, or legal argument sort of uh, tactics. Anyway, get him to ask Alosta de Raisa, because he's the scholar of the Torah. I mean, he's the one who, he, he's the man, and, he, and, and people listen to him. Over Darash, and he got up and he told him one of Aesop's fables. Ari Taraf Taraf, the Elmet Etzim Begrono. A lion once ate something and the bone got stuck in the throat. It's Aesop's fables. Omar called Osimapik Agre. Anyone who, any creature will come and pull the bone out of the throat of the lion will get a reward. Also, Hadein Kori Bitsarah, the Makori Arich, Yave Makori Bapke. Something like a stork or whatever, the long that came and stuck his thing in and pulled out the bone, right? And he saved the lion that pain. Amrli Havli Agre. And he said to the lion, give me my reward. The lion replied, Your reward is that you get to say, I stuck my head inside of a lion's mouth and got out and I'm still alive. <laughs> right? 
It's a famous Aesop fable. But the point is, you understand. Now, what was he saying over here? The lion is Rome. We're lucky we're alive. What are you pushing? You're lucky you're crazy? You see? You know, we're, the, the very fact that we are, as the Chazal always put it, and Hadrian says in one of the stories in the Gemara of Shum Hadrian says, How do you Jews survive? You were a, a sep preserving Shivim Zavim. You were like a sheep that was thrown into a corral of 70 wolves. What are the odds that the sheep is going to survive with 70 wolves? And, you, and you're alive. And so Hadrian himself, according to that, Agatha is saying, I'm astonished myself at the survival of the Jews. <coughs> you know, it's such a hostile environment. And uh, this is exactly so. Rabbi says, He's right. Shut up. Turn the other cheek. We have no choice. Okay? And on this occasion, he won. He prevailed. Okay? Now, that's the story. Uh, when did it happen? We don't know. You could speculate. I could play games, and I will. You could speculate this happened early in the reign of Hadrian, if it's true. And so Hadrian, as part of his pacification of the Middle East, because he's worried about the Parthian Wars and the retrenchment across the board, and he wants to consolidate his power and bump off the people that are any kind of a threat to him. So he'd say, tell the Jews we're going to rebuild the temple. You know, don't worry about it. Manana, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And the Jews get their hopes all up. Is this possible or possibly not? Hopes all up. And then at a certain point, when push comes to shove, he said, well, not really. In which case, which could have been in 118, 119, 120, we don't know. 121. In which case, at that moment, unlike 10 years later, wise heads prevail, and they say, so we won't get the temple, don't attack the Romans again, we're lucky we stuck our heads in the lion's mouth, and, we, and, and, and we're still alive about it. What do you expect from a guy like the Romans? Move on, right? You know, live with it, turn the other cheek. That's one possibility. Alternatively, uh, others think it happened in the year 130, because, as we'll see later tonight, in 130, I, I'm, I don't know if these numbers mean anything to you, but numbers kind of count in history, you know? Abraham Lincoln did live in 1961, he lived in 1861, uh, CE. Now, um, the, some people get it wrong. You should, see, you should see, they always put out of the news the mistakes made in American schools when it comes to history, you understand? Okay. So anyway, the point is that um, uh, in that case, when Hayden comes to the Middle East later on, and he sees Jews all for hetzed, all heated up, and he says, okay, he'll build a temple, and then he changes his mind, and then Rabbi Yeshua calms him down. Rabbi would have to be 90 years old, approximately, at that time. Uh, calm him down, and, uh, and then uh, things are calmed down, and then a little bit later, Rabbi Kiva heats him up, and the Bar Kochel Rebellion starts. Which of those scenarios is the correct one? We don't know. But it's intriguing. No, this kind of medrash certainly fits exactly into the reign of Hadrian, the period we're talking about. So something like that clearly happened. And this is why you'll sometimes see in the history books when they count what they like to fudge it. They say, well, Hadrian promised to rebuild the temple, but then he changed his mind. It's all based on this matters. There's no Roman source for that whatsoever. Uh, what does emerge from a close reading of the original Roman source of the life of Hadrian, and you can get them today, there aren't that many. There's the, the Historia Augusta, and there's the Dio Cassius, you know, those kind of things. What, what emerges is that he was a, a very well-educated, intelligent guy. He was seriously into philosophy and other things. And he was aware that power corrupts. And he sought to be on guard on it. But as I told you, Lomaisa, 
power did corrupt him, and slowly, in a steady progression, the longer he reigned, the worse he became, very slowly. So by the time you get to the year 130, he starts to engage with the Jews. He's not the Hadrian's operating so much from the head, but a lot more of the Hadrian's operating more and more increasingly from the heart. And when you're in the Middle East, even today, everything works from the heart. It's all, you know, look at Egypt right now. Right? Look at Syria. Look at Lebanon. They're all working out of here. I don't care what happens as long as I kill the guy next door. You see? This is the, 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 the emotion-driven Middle East that we're so, so familiar with and will never go away. Uh, who is it? Hunan ben Ishak, the famous medieval Arab uh, philosopher, uh, tells the tale. He says a, a, a person is walking the street in the Middle East and the angel appears to him and he's like this. This is your lucky day. You get whatever you want, don't feel like this. Your next door neighbor gets double. So if you get if you get a million, he's going to get two million. You can ask for twenty five million, but he's got to get fifty million. So what does the guy say? Knock out one of my eyes. <laughs> huh? Because you're operating from from the emotion and not from this. And 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 uh, as I said before, as an emperor, as long as he operated from the uh, the brains, so it kind of worked out. At least as far as the Jews are concerned, for everybody else. But as time went on, we're told by these non-Jewish uh, sources, he got a little bit more and more into that. Uh, it's very famous that by uh, the middle of his reign, Hadrian is having a party with a famous set of philosophers, and they um, say one proposition. He says, I know you're all wrong. They say, oh, yeah, you're right. He's all wrong. And they asked the big philosopher, Favorinus, he said, why did you agree with him? You weren't wrong. He says, anybody that's got 30 legions behind him is right. <laughs> you see? Which means... Right, that he was no longer willing to say, if you're, you know, I'm wrong, and he wasn't willing to look at things in that in that kind of way. Also, from an early age, we have to remember that Hadrian was a philhellene, that is to say, a lover of the Greek Greek culture, which in the Middle East is not good for the Jews. You may not know this, maybe actually, maybe you do know this now because you follow the newspapers. What's one of the countries in Europe at this moment which has a big Nazi party, has winning the elections, there's Hungary, and then there's also Greece, correct? And you ask yourself the question, what the heck are the Nazis doing in Greece? After all, the Nazis destroyed Greece. It oh, doesn't matter. There is, a, there is, among the Greek tradition and Greek culture, a heavy dose of anti-Semitism. That doesn't mean all the Greeks are anti-Semites, because that's not true either. But it's very much part of their culture, and it predates Greek Christianity. It predates the Christian religion. It's very interesting. If you go back in Hadrian's time and before that, to the world cultures in the Middle East, particularly in the context of the rise of the Roman Empire, you find very interesting stuff out there, and one of them is they have two groups, both of whom have been conquered, both of whom showed extreme political incompetence and were defeated and crushed by Rome, and both of whom consider themselves the master race. And, and they get a lot of people to buy into it. One's the Greeks and one's the Jews, of course. Correct? One's the Greeks and Jews. The Greeks were idiots and boobs when it came to politics. We all know the city-states fought each other so bad that eventually Philip of Macedon crushed them, and then Alexander the Great crushed them, and everybody else did afterwards. So they didn't, they didn't stand a chance. But the Greeks didn't say, well, I guess our civilization is rotten and corrupt because we can't get our military act together, and we can't organize our political system to, for mutual defense. People would say, I guess, yes, but we cook well. We have great public buildings. We have good writings. The Greek language is particularly pretty. The Greek uh, music at that time was considered particularly uh, lovely. And so really, we're great. And the Greeks invent this kind of idea, which you, the rude Romans, the barbarians, you have the, the military, you know, you have the, you have the uh, brawn. But uh, really, it's the brain, you know. And therefore, when it comes to brains, we Greeks are rule. What's interesting is that Hadrian bought into this. 
He was uh, he he, uh, he was the first emperor who grew a beard. Uh, he, you know how it goes in history. For for hundreds of years, uh, clean shaven is in. And then somebody sets a pattern, and then for a couple hundred years, uh, beards are in. And then somebody sets a pattern, and it goes back and forth. It's kind of interesting to study these sorts of things. Look, you know, for example, uh, just American history. In Abraham Lincoln's time, everybody had a beard. And it was true for another uh, couple decades. And then come 20th century, nobody's got a beard. Uh, when Dewey ran against Truman, <laughs> they, one of the reasons Dewey lost, because they had a mustache. They, they, they found it in the polls after the elections. I told you, democracy is the worst form of government except the others, you know? So, go because, <laughs> go, go figure it out. I don't think any president since Taft has had a, a, a mustache or a beard. People don't like that. <laughs> what are you hiding, you know? So, uh, Hadrian brought back the Greek style in these sorts of things, and um, he was a lover of the Greek culture. He spent a billion dollars fixing up Athens and, and, and another billion fixing up the Greek. I mean this. I mean this. You know, if you read, if you care to, read about his wanderings through the Greek territories and, you know, he spent time in this place and that place and the Lithuanian mysteries and all this stuff. So he was in there. Okay, there's nothing wrong necessarily with a person having an interest in Greek culture, but what about when it spills over into politics? The Greek culture has a good side and has a bad side, um, as is true probably of many. And Hadrian had brought out the architectural side, and Hadrian covered the uh, empire with huge buildings, especially the Greek style. Some of the most famous um, things come from that time. And also brought out his gay side, big time. Uh, because all the Roman emperors, as I said before, always had a harem of boys, in addition to whatever he had of girls. This is all true of all the Roman emperors except one. I keep forgetting the exception. Maybe it was Claudius, but I, I'm not sure. But, uh, uh, but that's what it was. But Hadrian... The more he spent time in the Greek area, the more out with it he came. And it's very famous. He came across a boy that was uh, very pretty. This is how he saw it, Antinous. And next thing you know, he made him his, uh, uh, what, I don't know even what the term is, you know. But, the, uh, but he, was, he was with him at all times. And they traveled all the Roman world together. And Hadrian got so into this that he flaunted it, which in Rome you're not supposed to do. What you do behind the doors is your business. You see? But you don't have gay marriage in Maryland, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. You wouldn't have that in Rome. And, uh, and here he is, uh, you know, flaunting it everywhere. Uh, the funny thing is that um, in 129, they visit Egypt. When they visit Egypt, they had some party on a ship. Next thing you know, Antinous was dead. And, you know, Hadrian said he fell off the boat. Uh, you don't fall off the boat and drown in the mouth if you got 100 Roman sailors with there, all the rest of it. It was part of some kind of sacrifice, you know, there's one of these Egyptian type rituals. Don't even go there, uh, exactly. But, but that's what happened. And then he broke down and cried, and he declared him a god. So the Roman Empire really hit low. This guy's supposed to be a philosopher. He's supposed to see the truth, or preserve the truth, and declared his boyfriend to be a god. And all the provinces, including in Israel, start uh, vying for the emperor's favor. Different, there's a million of these statues, different types. Everybody, nobody knows what he looked like, but everybody figured what a pretty boy looked like who was, you know, 19 or 20 years old or something like that, and you find them all over the empire, including in Israel today. Because uh, when, when people found that Hadrian was really into this guy was crying, they knew if they'll build a particularly nice statue and put a little temple around it, Hadrian will throw 10 million bucks at him. I, I mean that. And so the guy who did it, the, the, the sculptor, will, get, will end up with $100,000, $150,000, which was money in those days. <laughs> okay? And so France and, and England and all these places, it's crazy. Which goes to show you, he took the decadent side of the Greek culture in there. Um, 
Now, I'm not doing this simply to tell Kassav. I'm saying all this happens just before the Bar Kochu rebellion. You see? Uh, he's in a certain mood and way of thinking at that time. Uh, <laughs> a couple years ago, I'll tell you a funny story. A couple years ago, when I was in Israel, uh, I said, actually, not a couple years ago, it was in the 80s, uh, an American tourist, a lady, uh, she went on one of these uh, tours, uh, not from, and she sees in the sand two statues, two little, you know, like that's big. And she said, Look, Harry, you know, she picks them up and they bundle them and they take them to the airport. And she's, she too, too dumb to do anything wrong. You know, one was Hadrian, one was Antinous. It was not far from Hebron. And when he came to the airport, the guy, the Israeli guy said, like, Oh, you bought one of these at the bazaar? You know, one of those knockoff things like that. She should have said yes. But she was, she was so silly. She said, oh, no. I did this up out of the ground. Ding, ding, ding. You know, the police come out. <laughs> and she was in trouble, and they wanted to give her a fine and all this kind of business. And, and I don't remember what the end was. I remember it was in the paper. Uh, had she not done this, she come, should have come to America with it. And what? Made nothing. Why do I say nothing? There's so many Hadrian statues and so many Antinua statues. No. <laughs> it wouldn't work. That's what I'm trying to tell you over here. Now, the Jews, as you know, uh, had long ago, before Hadrian, developed a very bifurcated attitude towards the Greeks. True or not? Well, listen, on the one hand, there's the famous teaching, you can't deny it. The Chazal, the sages themselves said that the Greeks come from Yephes, which is the word Yafeh, you know, the son of, of Noah. Uh, a Sefer Torah, remember, in those days, was even written in Greek in the Greek Jewish communities in the Roman Empire. It's uh, shocking. Right? In other words, the Sefer Torah you have inside the Aron Kodesh that was taken out to be read on Shabbos on Monday and Thursday wasn't Greek a language, not in Hebrew. And uh, why that? I thought you can't write a Torah in anything else. You can't write a Torah in anything else, in, in Miguel says, except Greek. Because Greek is that which is particularly beautiful. And the Greek is particularly beautiful. So it goes to show you, you wouldn't imagine somebody like Rabbi Gamliel or whatever would say it, but that's exactly who has this opinion. So the Jews did recognize there was this aesthetic side of the Greek culture which summons admiration. On the other hand, ew. <laughs> right? They, they, they weren't into anything. No, they considered the Greek different, a decadent and an immoral culture. You see? And therefore, they look at Hadrian as, as having lost it. And instead of pursuing the philosophy and the higher way, and talking with Rabbi Yeshua Mechanania about whether you can see God or not. That already is an intelligent conversation. Agreed? To discuss the Jewish situation of a lamb and 70 wolves is already an intelligent conversation. To have a party in the Nile with your boyfriend is something different. So, as I told you, both the Jews and the Greeks, although conquered, consider themselves the, uh, the, the chosen people, and therefore in the Middle East, meaning in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, throughout the entire period of the Roman Empire, they're natural enemies. It's the uh, Jews and the Greeks. That's, that's the way it goes. As a matter of fact, a large amount of what happens, the triumph of Christianity in uh, later centuries in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, the Greek Orthodox, as they call it today, a lot of it has to do precisely with the anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic side. And many of the great church fathers, as they call them, many of the great uh, exponents and, and uh, leaders and thinkers of the church in the east um, have whole books and writings attacking the Jews in, uh, in, in the most bitter uh, terms. Uh, St. John of Chrysostom and people like that, it's, it's, it's off the wall. So uh, it's that Greek stuff coming out and saying, no, we're the master power. 
and the Jews are the bad ones. And the Jews say, oh no, the whole Greek thing is uh, corrupt, and this whole Christianity that you created is some baloney. Try to mask the essential paganism that lies at the core of your uh, culture with a veneer of Judaism, and you don't fool us at all. And, and, and it goes down till today. Now, um, one of the things that uh, Hadrian was into in his travels is restoring old temples. I just told you, he went all over the Roman Empire for 20 years about, close to it. And again, he comes to Sicily and there was an old thing that was blown up by the, by, by the uh, Vesuvius or whatever and he fixes the temple up in grand style much more than before. He goes to Asia Minor, it's a place he never heard of, uh, Ephesus and so forth, and he spends vast sums of money and the old writers say it's the wonders of the world. He goes to Rhodes, to Alexandria, to Morocco even, to Carthage, uh, you know, to Gaul, everywhere he goes. And uh, this idea of restoring the old temples was an act of piety. And in Roman uh, culture particularly, piety uh, is the highest virtue. Piety is veneration for things that are old. The older I get, the more I appreciate that sentiment. But the, uh, <laughs> right? You're the, the, the veneration of things that are old. Uh, and to tell you the truth, as a rabbi, you always see a lot more people into piety than the religion. You know, you give a speech at a bar, I always say, you give a speech at a bar mitzvah or whatever, and you say, oh, this family has a kesher with the Ravonish Shalolam, and you can see the spirituality that flows out of there, and the people say, yeah, 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 yeah. But then, now, put that speech aside. Let's do the piety one. I knew your parents. I knew your grandparents. They were in the old Baltimore, or the old Alabama, and they, and they worked real hard for Yiddishkeit in those days when it was really hard, and so it was, People start trembling, crying. It was motivated by piety more than religiosity. And so um, it's, an, it's an important. Hadrian very pious in this regard. Oh, so as long as you're going around restoring old temples, <clears throat> have you heard Jerusalem? Have you heard Jerusalem? The problem is he does hear Jerusalem. It's not going to come out the way they want. So it would make sense if you're talking about the 120s that Jews start to speculate whether Hadrian was through their temple long ago, like Cyrus. There's no ever clear evidence that he ever said in the 120s that he would, but you hear that he's going to this place and building this up and going to that place building it up. And, 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 and let's uh, put it this way. I mean, I'm, there's no question in my mind. Intelligent Jews of a particular stripe would say, oh, you'll see. Um, Hadrian will rebuild the base of Migdos, and it'll be a wise move in his part. It'll be on the part of his consolidation of the empire and the pacification of all distraught elements, just like he pulled the army out of Parthia in order to consolidate the eastern frontier, and he took great pains to take care of the Rhine frontier and all the rest of it. He's, look how smart he is. He knows the Jews are all worried about the base of Migdos, all the rest of it. If he, as the Roman emperor, will do another Cyrus and will rebuild the base of Migdos as it once was and say to the Jews, here you have it back, the whole attitude of the Jews towards the Roman Empire will change, and instead of the Jews being a, uh, a restless and a dissatisfied element who are always agents of rebellion and uh, you know, disintegration, all the rest of it, they'll think Rome is great, and listen, we were loyal long ago to Persia. True or not? You know, when, when Cyrus and later Darius, it was a story, but when the Persians permitted, they didn't build themselves, when the Persians permitted the Jews to return to Israel and uh, rebuild the, the temple, we know from history that the Jews repaid that with intense loyalty. Some of you will probably know what I'm talking about if I say elephantine. You know, you ever seen that? Right? Some people, this, this was a fort that they dug up, archaeologists, in the south of Egypt, not too far away from Sudan border, all the way in the south of Egypt on the Nile. Um, archaeologists, I think in the 1920s, I believe, uh, long ago. 
and uh, it's in the Jewish Museum in New York, you know, the one in Central Park, and uh, they were shocked because it was a fortress that dated back from the Persian Empire, from the time of Darius and all that. I mean, that's long ago before Alexander the Great, of course. And it was a Persian uh, garrison because the Persians ruled Egypt. Jewish soldiers, the whole garrison was Jewish. What's that all about? You see? But the answer is the Persians are smart. He says, you know, you stick Jewish soldier in Egypt, the Jews are much more loyal to Persia than to Egypt, and they stayed loyal there. Josephus tells us that when Alexander the Great came in the Middle East, a lot of these Arab-type groups uh, jumped with the winner. And the Jews, this is what Josephus said, the Jews did not. The high priest of the Jews said, we're loyal to Persia, until it was like, you know, it was obvious that the Persians are out and it's over. But the notion is that we Jews have a long historical memory, we pride ourselves in that anyway, Usually we like to think of ourselves as a nation that has at least a virtue of gratitude. We do remember in our collective memories those who were good to us as we remember those who were bad to us. True? We, we're not going to forget Hitler, but we also don't forget the Hasidim and the righteous Gentiles that help people in the world. So don't you agree with that? And so if a guy like Hadrian, with his education and all the rest of it, would then say, I fixed up the temples of Zeus and Minerva, and this one, that one, the other one, let's do the Jews. Would have been a wise move. And therefore there was clearly speculation among the Jews, speculation hawking big time, as they call it, you know, at the Jewish synagogues and at the coffee tables, what's happening now, where's the emperor was going to do uh, next. Um, it's also true, by the way, that the 120s, as I just described to you, was a time clearly of economic boom, peace, and prosperity. And Jews also were part of that. And when you're making money, that kind of usually, not always, but usually uh, lowers down the political passions. Agreed? This is the theory of the United States of America, right or wrong. They say if you give the Palestinians a trillion dollars, they'll concentrate on their economic uh, you know, well-being and not on the other states. If you give Iraq a zillion dollars, then they won't be uh, you know, angry about the others. Eh, some truth to that, some not. But anyway, this, it, it does palliate. And it does put some kind of a, you know, oil in the waters. So we're looking at this kind of era over here. Um, the Jews of Eretz Israel, by the way, also benefit from this uh, economic boom. And yet it's clear that there were bitter feelings simmering just below the surface. Right? That's clearly what happened. Uh, the base of Migdash had been destroyed, year 70. We're already talking 120s. It's 50 years after the temple. So let's use a modern analogy. World War II is over in the 1940s. By the 90s, the new generation, you talk about the Holocaust, they don't know what you're talking about. True? They don't know what you're talking about. Most of the people who come in my trip, I'm sure, next week, the Holocaust Museum, will be people, you know, older than 40. You see? The young generation, you say somebody, Hitler and the Holocaust, yeah, it's like Titus, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's the Crusades. It's something from the long past. And he said, well, it was just the other day, but it wasn't in your time. And so by the time you have the reign of Hadrian, the, this, the war that brought so much destruction and, and, and uh, you know, cruelty to the Jews in the time of Titus, of Vespasian, was uh, you know, what the grandparents talk about in the old days, the, the survivors. And it's not something engaged the young. The young said like this, why did we lose the war? The questions no longer were, was it a wise policy to take on Rome? The questions that the young are talking about are, what mistakes did we make in the last war that we can analyze and, and then make sure that when we go in round two, we won't make these mistakes again, and this time we'll take those Romans out. Even though the objective reality of 
Israel versus the Roman Empire had not changed. But that's how young people often are. And um, clearly, the, you know, you had the natural impetuosity of youth versus the jaded wisdom of the elderly. I personally think, although I don't know, but I think that the famous Chazal that says, Steer as the king in Binyan, and Binyan on Steer dates from this period. Uh, that means that there's a very famous teaching in the Gemara which goes as follows. Destruction of the elders is really construction. Construction of the, of the youth is really destruction. And the famous story that's given in the Tanakh, in the Bible, is that after the death of Shlomo Melech, you had uh, Rechavam, his son, take over, who was a real jerk. And the people come to him and they say, um, your father made the tax burden and so forth too heavy on us. Agree to sign a Magna Carta, and then we will... That's exactly what he meant. You know, lowering the taxes and granting rights to the people and all that. And then we will be your servants. And, and the story famously is he had two sets of advisors, the uh, Zikanim and the Narim. The older advisors were from Shlomo's time, so they were very Machiavellian. They knew how to, what politics is all about. And they, tell, they, they, tell, they advise him as follows. Uh, sign everything today, just get on the throne. Then get to Venezia, you know. If, if you'll be their slave today, you'll be their master tomorrow. That's how they put it. And the young advisor said, oh no, if you're a wimp from day one, they'll walk all over you and you'll be a nothing. And therefore tell them the opposite. I'll double the taxes. Kartani my little finger is fatter than my father's waist. My father needed this much taxes and I'll double and triple it and you'll like it. Well, they all quit on him and he lost the kingdom. And in the wake of that, you know, the Gemara says, but here you learn, that the construction of the uh, elderly people, meaning, I'll use an American model. You go to the best lawyer, and the, you know, because you got a case. You got the best lawyer money going by and the lawyer says, you know, burp. You burp. Right? He said, but that's silly. You don't burp in the court. If this guy tells you to do it, he knows what that guy's talking about. And if a young guy who's very inexperienced comes in, he says, do this, that, and the other, and it makes a lot of sense, there's a reason he's young and inexperienced. <laughs> you see? And so um, this fits exactly to 120s. Uh, the older people, like the Yeshua Mechanania types and those sorts, they're saying, you stick your head in the mouth of the lion, stick your head out of the mouth of the lion, just shut up, life is not fun. If I could fantasize, the state of Israel would have a huge army and kick out all of its enemies everywhere for miles around that. But I don't live in a fancy world. I live in the Middle East. You see? I live in the real world and have to adjust to it. And same thing. There were messianic figures, as we'll see later on, and that's, that's exactly what they said. They said, yes, the Roman Emperor is very powerful, but if we have the help of Hashem, we can split the sea. We can make uh, the hail come down. We can turn everything upside down. And it'll be the few will conquer the many. Is that <laughs> real or is that fantasy land? You see? These are the issues <coughs> simmering below the surface during the first half of the reign of, of Hadrian. The Rabbi Shumachanani model, of course, obviously represents the first. You see a lot of this once again in the Midrashim uh, and Parshish told us. Uh, if you're interested in the subject, I invite you to take a look at them. Shnei Goyim Bevitnech. There are two nations. Uh, who is it? Rivka is told in, in your belly. Shnei Goyim, no, Snuei Goyim Bevitnech. The, 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 the hated among the nations area. Everybody hates the Romans and everybody hates the Jews. That's what the Medrash says. You see? Or Shnei Goyim, where there are only two nations that count. Right? There's the Jews and the Romans, the others don't matter. All these attitudes of, of trying to speculate and analyze this phenomenon of we're the number one people in the world, so why are the Romans running all around? What's Hadrian going to do? 
dominating the Jewish uh, conversation, obviously, in this uh, period. Um, and so the young are saying, let's take them. And the olders are saying, in the 120s, uh, wait a minute, why go to war? Maybe Hadrian will allow the rebuilding of the temple. As I told you, it would be a wise move on his part. Prior to 130, no one ever knows. Because until the year 130, from 117 to 130, Hadrian is going all over the world except in the Middle East. But in 130, he said, let me visit the Middle East. First he goes to Egypt, that's where the party where Antonius falls off. Um, and he visits Israel. Um, look at this, they found not long ago. Let's go to the next one. Yeah, they, this is a coin from Judea. In 130, honoring and celebrating the visit of Hadrian over here, there's his beard, visiting uh, uh, Judea. You see? In other words, visit a Roman emperor is a big deal. And when a Roman emperor shows up, he shows up with a couple of legions, so it is a big deal, and you don't mess with it. And the speculation goes nuclear as well as viral. What's he going to do? And he visits Yerushalayim. And he's very inquiring, we're told, by Diocassius, what was here, what was the temple, what was there before. And he's totally focused on the fact, because he's there physically, that Jerusalem has a commanding kind of topographical uh, position, and it makes total sense that the temple of this area would be located in Jerusalem, and it's an ideal spot, and so on and so forth. And the, uh, what shall I say, the Jews watch and wait, and they're speculating like crazy, and what's exactly going to happen. What Hadrian ends up deciding to do in the year 130 is something that we will turn to in three days. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.